And hello there, Peter Mansbridge here. You are just moments away from the latest episode of The Bridge. It's the Moore Butts Conversation number seven. They're back, and they've got lots to say this week. there welcome to another new week right here on the bridge peter mansbridge here and uh, more butts number seven coming right up good conversation about the relationship between canada and the u.s been lots of talk about that recently with the visit by joe biden to ottawa the special conference that took place um, in canada just in the last couple of weeks uh, promoted by the eurasia group uh, of which jerry butts by the way is a uh, vice chairman of the Eurasia Group, and had some of the top names in Canada-U.S. relations uh, at that uh, conference. So a lot of discussion about where is the relationship right now, and are we in some ways perhaps approaching a critical point in that relationship? We'll have a good conversation on that. But just before we get to it, i got to tell you something that happened last week. On your turn, I don't think this has ever happened before in the three-year history of this program. As you know, I read your letters. I read many of them on air, excerpts from them, and I, you know, respond if there are questions or just let them hang there Um, because they're pretty good comments, all of them. So this letter turns up last week from Ian Hamburg in Brandon, Manitoba. And that's as far as I got when I mentioned the letter. Because I got attracted to the, wow, he's from Brandon. I used to live in Brandon. And the next thing I knew, I was telling stories about Brandon, Manitoba. I only lived there for a couple of months. It was back in 1967. And, um, but it was a, a memorable memorable couple of months for me and i wanted to share the story and then when i finished it i moved on to the next letter so i never read anything for me never told his story until on the weekend i get this note from daryl wig in crow's nest pass alberta never lived there but sure talked about crow's nest pass many many times over the years in the news business But Daryl writes, very short note, I wonder what Ian Hamburg of Brandon, Manitoba wrote about. (laughs) And I'm going, what's he talking about? And then I checked the podcast, and sure enough, (laughs) I never read Ian's note. So I wrote to Ian, and I apologized to him, and uh, promised that I would read his note today, and I am. This is what he said. I listened to your podcast for the past two years and enjoyed it immensely. Today's podcast, April 5th, he was referring to, left me feeling depressed. I, too, watched the 60-minute interview with Marjorie Taylor Greene and was appalled. Is there no media organization left with the intestinal fortitude to call out these people in positions of power when they spew vitriol and misinformation? Well... You know, the debate rages on about that 60 Minutes interview and were they trying to do that actual fact, trying to call it out by airing it. 
I don't know, some people feel they totally sucked in and just moved the vitriol and misinformation along, while others say, yeah, they called it out by doing it. So I don't know, Ian, where, uh, where clearly we know where you stand on that, and I, I had my difficulties with that interview as well. It wasn't what I expected. Um, anyway, I wrote to Ian, apologized, he accepted the apology, and then he came back with another letter, which I'll briefly read now because it's actually about Brandon. Further your, to your reminiscence of, uh, of your time spent in Brandon, Manitoba, I can add further information. Rivers, Manitoba, operated as a training base for Air, Army, and Navigation personnel, and in 1947-48 was the largest air training base in North America with runways that could support commercial aircraft. In 1947, Chuck Yeager broke the sound barrier, which to a young lad in school caused a lot of excitement. In 48, I was in grade 3, and we were accustomed to aircraft flying at great rates of speed over our small hamlet 50 kilometers northwest of Rivers. One day at morning recess, we heard an aircraft flying very fast overhead. Suddenly there was a loud bang and an explosion with a fireball, plumes of smoke some distance to the west of the town. Debris was scattered over a large area, and I can recall military officials visiting our farm to request of my father to gather any remnants and return them. Even later, I recall finding pieces of aluminum from the fuselage hidden in the bushes in the cow pasture. Exciting times with the big war over, but not the memories. Thanks, Ian. And uh, there you got two letters for the price of one. A little, little, let, a little late, but nevertheless, you got them. Anyway, thank you. Much appreciated. All right, let's move on to the main purpose of today, which is the Moore Butts conversation number seven. And this one deals with that relationship between Canada and the U.S. So a quick reminder, Jerry Butts was the former principal secretary to Justin Trudeau when he became prime minister. He's now the vice chair of the Eurasia Group. James Moore, a former conservative cabinet minister, a number of portfolios, including minister of industry. Uh, he's now the senior business advisor to the Dentons Group, based in Vancouver. So let's get at it. Good conversation here, um, as they always are, with uh, James Moore and Jerry Butts. Now I know we're all different ages, and I, you know, I've got the highest number. But if there's one one thing that we probably all can identify with, it's uh, those times when we were in grade school when we talk about Canada, U.S., and it was always. You know the, the the longest undefended border in the in the world, and best of friends, number one trading partners, all that stuff. Um, now those cliches are still you know still basically true, um, but the relationship itself, how would you describe it today, uh, compared with you know those times when we talked about it when we were in school, James? Good, like. Good. There are times where it's excellent, but it's good. It's transactional. I think the um, the Donald Trump threat to NAFTA and his, his, I think, genuine threat to abrogate NAFTA and and throw the relationship under the bus, I think, stirred up uh, a sort of an awakening of the importance of the transactional nature of the relationship. Uh, and, and I think that's been good. I think for a very long time, 
after the 08 economic recession, after the stresses between the Canada-US relationship over, you know, going all the way back to Ronald Reagan and the Cold War, George W. Bush, and uh, some issues with, I think, Barack Obama and differences, for example, with the Harper government on, on some issues. There have been some stresses over time, but we kind of got through them. And I think Donald Trump threatening to, to tear up the relationship made a lot of people who allowed the relationship to be taken for granted to um, no longer do that. And I think that's appropriate. Um, uh, With regard to Joe Biden and his recent visit to Canada, you know, President Biden is like all all American presidents are, are isolationists and, and so on. I mean, they, they have their own way of presenting it. Donald Trump is, was a, you know, a blustery blowhard uh, who did threaten to abrogate NAFTA. But in the end, his administration was incompetent and dysfunctional and incapable of of doing, you know, uh, you know, five percent of what his rhetoric demanded and, and expected. Um, President Biden is disarming because of his nature, his presentation, his um, you know, get along with kind of nature and his age, and he seems unthreatening. But the reality is, he's a lot more cagey, and the people around him are a lot more forceful in an actual practical agenda that does threaten, I think, a lot of Canada's long-standing uh, access to the American marketplace, whether it's the uh, the Inflation Review Act or uh, the the way in which he's approaching procurement policies and climate change and uh, by shutting down Keystone XL Pipeline, Line 5, and other things, that it's, he's, a, he's a different kind of a threat. So the relationship is, it's good um, because we can talk and, and we're sort of, the relationship is better understood on a transactional basis, but it's, it's always, I think, under threat because small movements by America have deep and lasting consequence to the regional natures, uh, regional nature of the Canadian economy and our North South trade relationships that exist in different ways in different parts of the country, East and West. You know, it's like that old saying that Pierre Trudeau, it's like, a mouse sleeping next to an elephant, right? The slightest little twitch on the elephant. <laughs> Things are going to be very difficult for the mouse. Um, Cherry, uh, how do you see it? I generally agree with James. I think it's in pretty good shape, and I think it's in better shape than people, dare I say it, Peter, of your generation, not necessarily you yourself, but uh, thought it might be in the aftermath of the economic integration that that was inevitably, it was the design of the free trade agreement back in 1988. I remember writing in a Nova Scotia essay contest uh, in grade 11 at the ripe old age of uh, uh, grade 12 at the ripe old age of 17 about what might happen to Canada after the free trade agreement. And I think that the fear at the time was that um, the economic integration that was intended to come along with the agreement would in somehow, in some way undermine our own sense of our national identity. And I think the opposite has happened, frankly. I think that Canadians are much more confident as Canadians than they were when I was a kid. I think that we have a better sense of ourselves and notwithstanding withstanding the constant politicization of national unity and regionalization as an issue. I think that most people are very comfortable uh, with um, their country and most people have a better sense of what it means to be Canadian, not just in distinction uh, to the United States, but 
um, in its own right. And I, and I think that that's the key point here, right? That the old uh, line, I can't remember which Canadian scholar said this in the 1960s, but that we were, our, our national identity was a negative definition that we were not Americans, right? And I just don't, I don't think most Canadians see it that way anymore. So I think the relationship has matured. It's still definitional politically for whomever is in power at the time. Uh, but we don't have this undertow of anti-Americanism uh, uh, just for the sake of being anti-American, which makes it difficult for political leaders of different parties to stake out reasonable positions on economic and security matters. Uh, we may not be anti-American. and I, I agree with you. I don't think we are anti-American, but there are a lot of Canadians who go, I really don't want to be like them. And, and they're talking about that today you know yeah what we've witnessed you know james referred to the trump era but some of that is still around some of it is still very much around and then there's the whole guns issue and abortion and you name it um and so where's the line between being anti-american and being i don't want to be like that we've got to yeah. make sure we, we we stay different from that where were the lines? yeah i think so. oh sorry peter i, I I, I think that's a hard one to draw, and it's almost issues based at one level, but on another, it's almost metaphysical. It's it's uh, to borrow an Americanism. I don't know what American is, but I know it when I see it. Right, <laughs> and uh, thank God we don't have school shootings, and we're not fighting to disempower fifty percent of the population uh, from having control over their own bodies and all these things. Uh, and I think that there there is an undercurrent of fear that if, and I know you want to get into this later in the podcast, but if America goes badly sideways, what does that mean for Canada? Uh, and that's something we need to be thinking about a lot uh, in um, in this country. One, one thing to think about the difference between Canadian American politics is that, you know, for example, um, if, if Justin Trudeau has a majority government uh, or even a minority that's locked in with the NDP, and he decides he's going to present a list to Parliament of 50 different kinds of firearms, and he's going to switch them from being restricted to prohibited. And basically, you can't transfer them, effectively making you know 90% of guns illegal uh, for private possession in Canada. If he proposes that, that's going to happen. And there can be a lot of noise about it and debate about it and protest about it, but that's going to happen. In the United States, Gary Dewar, former ambassador in Washington, he used to say, America is an amazing country. It is a can-do country. They put people on the moon. They can, you know, technologically, scientific discovery, business enterprise, capitalism. America is a can-do country, but they're a can't-do government. Because the system of checks and balances and all that. So, they, so as a, because when in Canada, if you have a majority government or even a really functional minority government, if the prime minister says they're going to do something, it's, it's going to happen in, in some form pretty close to what's being rhetorically presented. In the United States, that is not the case. So because that's not the case, the political actors have to dial the rhetoric to 12 in order to convince those voting cohorts that they really believe in this, that I'm really on your side, that I believe that firearms ownership is so important, that I'm going to make sure that my Christmas card, every member of my family, even the five-year-olds, are holding some kind of a firearm so that you really know I'm with you. And so, and therefore, the, the culture around the issues 
and the cultural divide and the tribalism of politics gets more divided because the rhetoric gets so high. And that if you're not flexing the right symbolism around the issue, then you really don't believe. Whereas in Canada, if you if you present something, it's going to happen. Almost every provincial legislature through the sweep of, sweep of Canadian history is a majority government because most provinces are it's a two party system. And almost every election, therefore, results in a majority mandate. And federally in Canada, the prime minister wields a lot of power. So so the differences in American politics blow up in the media and the business around media and the business around the exploitation of the cultural divide and the tribalism around politics is out of control. But if you actually look at the shifts in policy, nothing really changes, even after Sandy Hook, even after Columbine even after the Pulse nightclub, or in, we're talking about guns here as an mm-hmm. obvious prime example. So, so therefore, the divides in America are, are culturally very, very deep. And you, and you can't talk about politics as much as you can't talk about religion, or you can't talk about sexual orientation within, amongst different family members and, and these kinds of divides that are really tough and, 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 and sensitive to, 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 to broach. Um, but, it's a, but it's a fallout from a political system that is, in, in a lot of ways, incapable of driving towards any kind of reconciliation. Do those kind of differences, I mean, do they affect the relationship? I mean, it's pretty clear the differences you're talking about between our systems, but does that affect the relationship at all? I think in some ways, if, if you're expecting some kind of an act, some kind of action and coordinated uh, response, uh, and then when America does align and does have consensus on something, then Canada, we, 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 we better do this. 9-11 happens, right? So the, America shuts down its airspace and says to Canada, if you want to fly back into Reagan National Airport, you have to have air marshals on your planes. We don't have air marshals. What is that? How do you do? Well, they have to, air marshal has to be in the plane and they have to have a firearm. Okay, well, I, well, I guess we're doing that now. And so David Colnett, then the transport. So, okay, here, here we go. Uh, or the United States decides that they're going to bail out um, Ford and they're going to bail out GM. And if Canada isn't part of that package, then Canada, you're going to lose your Ford and GM footprint in Canada because the the largesse that we'll put in the United States will repatriate these these uh, this auto building capacity in North America back into the United States. We're going to put the money on the table. And we're going to make America great again. Uh, look, okay, so Canada, we have to come together with a package. Stephen Harper, Jim Flaherty, neither of them got into office to do a massive corporate welfare bail. But but here we are. So if America does snap and get into alignment, Afghanistan, Iraq war, for example, these are all contemporary examples. Well, Canada, we better we better get going. So we can sort of sit back and look at the example that I just gave about the the in, the incapacity for America to act often on a lot of big sweeping domestic issues but if america decides to align and focus and go uh and if you're if you're not with them you're against them and they have that kind of mentality then then we have to as canadians be very mindful of that relationship and that expectation uh and and recognize what it is that we're prepared to tolerate and prime minister kretchen said no to the iraq war um you know we, we've stephen harper had his moments of inflection with barack obama but um, but it's, it's important that you, you kind of recognize that, you know, w- when that pressure does align, that uh, Americans do do recognize who their friends are. How do you see it, Jerry, on that point? Well, I think if uh, smart Canadian governments can use it to their advantage, right, that there, it's pretty clear that, for instance, the current government has wanted to do a lot more on climate change and on um, creating a favorable policy for 
decarbonization and the economic growth that goes along with it. But they had a hard time doing it in the absence of strong policy in the United States. And part of that was, in in my view, internal barriers within the Canadian system of government. But as soon as the Inflation Reduction Act, as soon as the Inflation Reduction Act happened, say that 10 times fast, (laughs) the Department of Finance in Canada suddenly became environmentalists, right? And it wasn't because they uh, got religion on climate change. It's because they saw a, a continental competitive imperative for creating that policy. The United States could have chosen to uh, and they did partially, I guess, redesign their policy on the semiconductor industry, and we would have had a similar kind of reaction from the Department of Finance. And then there's another example that I was personally involved with, so I can speak to in the run-up to the midterms in 2018, it happened to coincide with a real inflection point in the NAFTA negotiations. And the United States was trying to make us believe that they would go to Congress with an agreement that didn't include us. And we just didn't believe them. Uh, We thought they wanted to rush an agreement to the existing Congress because Bob Lighthizer didn't know what was going to happen in the midterms, or at least he was negatively predisposed to what was going to happen in the midterms. And he didn't want to have to deal with a bunch of Democrats. Right. Uh, That was the U S trade negotiator, right? Yes. The, the, the NAFTA 2.0, I still refuse to use that alphabet (laughs) soup that, uh, (laughs) the Trump administration insisted on. So we knew that they had to get this deal done because they didn't want to go and deal with the new Congress. And that helped us shape the negotiations to come to a head at the end of September in um, 2018. And I think that all worked out in the country's favor, thanks to broad cross-partisan support from people like James. Um, But had the U.S., had the Trump administration been able to rely on a favorable Congress for the next two years, who knows how that negotiation might have dragged out. Can either one of you share me a story before we move on here a bit? Um, Share me a story about what it was what it was like inside, whether, whether James, it was something on, on your, one of your bilateral um, uh, negotiations or discussions with your counterpart in the States when you were industry minister, or Jerry, when you were, um, you know, at the White House with, you know, Obama first and then uh, and Trump and his senior people. Can you share anything that talks about kind of that, that, understanding of the relationship between the two more i guess from what you witness from the americans i mean we all know about how we we seem to know a lot about the states and not so much americans know about us although i don't think that's necessarily true all the time sometimes we can be surprised about that uh, just how much they know about us but in terms of uh, anecdotal something can you leave us with something on the on that relationship well i if i can go first here james i would say the Probably the most bizarre, surreal experience of my professional life was going from dealing with the Obama White House, Dennis McDonough and his team, and then the Trump White House. And it was, maybe I can share the story. I hope I'm not telling tales out of school because we had very recently been, (laughs) Peter's like, tell those tales. Um, We had very recently been to the Obama White House. I can't remember why. Maybe it was uh, the nuclear security summit. Anyway, it doesn't really matter why we were there. But the Obama White House was as you would picture it. You know, everything was tidy. There was 
vintage American art on the walls. Uh, it kind of looked like the set of the West Wing, right? And then right after, I think we were one of the first uh, foreign governments to go to the Trump White House. And the first thing I noticed was everywhere there used to be a painting, there was now a television set. <laughs> and the television set was on 24 hours day on cable news and they had all of the cable news channels not just fox uh, even the chief of staff's office which under mcdonough had been uh pretty staid and it kind of looked like leo mcgarry's office uh was just all tvs wall to wall and they were constantly on edge about what the president was going to tweet uh five minutes from uh mm -hmm. every five minutes to the next so it really can change but in, in my experience, the top of the house, and it doesn't matter the party, and by that I don't necessarily mean the president, I mean a lot of the senior staff, and in particular in the security services, the NSA, they really understand Canada. They know a lot more about Canada. Uh, we can be self-loathing as Canadians and think that we're not worth the Americans' time. They don't think that way, <laughs> especially on the security side. They know a lot about our country and they make it their business to know. James? They're, um, I mean, uh, you know, it, it's very true. The, the United States, they look at Canada at, at, at its most base element. If you tear down all of the veneer and all of the dressing and all that, and you look at just what they see as Canada fundamentally, they see us as a five eyes partner who is who is internal uh, who is internal partner on on information sharing for national security we're a member of the G7 we are uh, a member uh, an expected member and ally at the UN on a nat global national security issues and we're 35 million 40 million people of middle class incomes who can buy a lot of american stuff and so that that those are the key pillars and they don't want those things threatened the nafta negotiations pivoted really as as jerry described as we we're going towards the midterms on a number of fronts including when in the united states uh in a lot of swing states wisconsin michigan iowa uh minnesota when those states they and the agricultural sector said wait a minute we're not gonna we're gonna abrogate and throw away nafta the, the stuff that we farm and we grow, we sell to Canada. What are you talking about? And so in those swing states, the pressure came on and, and it sort of and it pushed them back on, on on the anecdote side about about the relationship and how, frankly, sensitive it can be when you have presidents who are really popular or really uh, unpopular. I, I, I remember when when uh, when we were in government, when President George W. Bush, uh, you know, it's funny, as distance goes, you kind of forget. But he, he was his as unpopular, hot, negative in Canada as, as any president. And he had the famous press conference with Prime Minister Harper, and he referred to him as Steve. And I remember we said, Steve, we call him Steve. I've known, I, I've known Stephen Harper since 1992. And Lorene Harper doesn't call him Steve. His, <laughs> his, his garage band, nobody calls him Steve. George W. Bush called him Steve. And then now that's George Bush's folksy nature of just sort of you know demonstrating to the world that we really do kind of have a bond and, and all of this. But he was that was just George W. Bush making it up. But we're just like, holy shit! How are we going to convince people <laughs> that these guys are best friends? Like, how do we? Do? And of course, it was sort of slowly. But that 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 existed as a meme for a couple of years, right? And now that was early social media, so it didn't quite get weaponized as it might today. But that clip lived for a while, and we we're just like, we're, we're trying to sort of distinguish ourselves that. Prime Minister Krejcian said no to the Iraq war. We're going to reconcile and recognize that, but we do support the war on terror. We are in Afghanistan. 
you know, we, we, we have our distinguishing features and all that, and, but we're a Canadian and we're not sort of a kissing cousins and all, but he, he called him Steve. Okay. <laughs> well, then with, with one, with one word, we have to sort of revamp our, our approach to convincing Canadians otherwise. So but there you are. <laughs> well, needless to say, we had the same problem with Trump, right? It was, uh, they, well, I don't think it was the same problem, but <laughs> well, they have to have a constructive relationship, but they can't be seen to be buddy buddy, right? Yeah, exactly. And that that was difficult because Trump was he was uh, he was so many things, but amongst them was he was black and white on whether you were friend or foe. And usually, people who thought they were friends became foes anyway, so it did, it didn't really matter. But we were very keen. It all kind of got crystallized around the quote unquote handshake capital. H on the first visit to the White House, but we were very worried that we were going to have a Steve moment. <laughs> In fact, well, I think somebody might have even referred to it as that. Well, it, it, it's funny. Well, it, the, I don't like to on, on a serious point on all this. Like you know, the the interpersonal relationships of presidents and prime ministers and why I mean these things do matter. They do matter. And you know, as a as a conservative. Who, who didn't and doesn't and hasn't supported Prime Minister Trudeau, the Canada-U.S. relationship is above and beyond partisanship. You know, national security, national unity, and economic, you know, fundamentals beyond sort of left-right typical debates, and therefore the Canada-U.S. relationship, to me, is sort of is beyond partisanship. And when I thought about early Justin Trudeau, you know, elected in 2015, 2016, Donald Trump, the NAFTA renegotiations negotiations begin in the fall of 1718. Going forward at that time, in, in my view, when Justin Trudeau was at the peak of his powers in terms of uh, reputational equity in the United States of, of being sort of the young, cool guy winner, um, in my view, as someone who wanted a prime minister to defend NAFTA as it was and as it is, and, it's, and, and the virtues that do exist within it, Donald Trump seeing Justin Trudeau as a winner. I mean, Donald Trump can get along with Kim Jong-un. He can get along with Vladimir Putin. He can get along with some Republicans and some Democrats. I mean, he was at Hillary Clinton's wedding. I mean, Donald Trump didn't really care about left or right. Donald Trump cares about winners and losers. And and if you're seen as a winner, that's an asset. So for Canada, Canada and for, you know, even my conservative fellow travelers, like a lot of us had to recognize that at this window of time and moment, whether you like Justin Trudeau or you don't, at that window in time when he was at the peak of his popularity in the United States and media and on the cover of the Rolling Stone, I think that was a net asset for Canada in terms of Donald Trump being wanting, wanting to be associated with a winner. And if there was some way in which we could snooker uh, an agreement that was as close to the original NAFTA underneath that sort of dynamic, that would be good for Canada. And we should just recognize what's at our advantage for what it is. Yeah, and I wish we'd have been able to invest it in something other than maintaining the status quo, right? That uh, we had to spend all of that political capital in the United States on pretty much, I used to joke during the NAFTA negotiations that never have so many people work so hard to make nothing happen, <laughs> which was our basic strategy through NAFTA. And it worked in the end, but I wish we'd been able to use it to build something rather than just uh, defend something. But the biggest challenge to the, the biggest challenge to NAFTA, and we, we can get to it about sort of looking ahead is actually the new NAFTA. It does oh, yeah. expire 2026. And, and there are some real challenges in the Canada, U S Mexico relationship on the horizon. Okay. we got to take our break, but I, I still can't, I can't get over the Steve moment. And I, I keep saying to myself, what was that next cabinet meeting like? Were you all sitting around the table waiting for the big guy to come in the room and asking each other, who's going to call him Steve? <laughs> <laughs> no, it wasn't quite like that, but it's just kind of, 
it, that's not his name. <laughs> and George W. Bush sort of imposed that on us like, okay, well, so, so you kind of instantly knew that there was a sort of a, a reset in terms of our perception of things. And it's like, all right, well, now we have to find ways to distinguish our, it's not, it's, but we saw it. The tape exists, said the detractors. Okay. So here we go. It, it, I, I understand all that. I still, <laughs> I still have this image because nobody would have called him Steve at that time in Ottawa, right? Nobody would have call, called him that, as you yeah, said. No, he, his wife. He, I, I count him as a as a good friend of mine, and we we talk. I think pretty regularly. And, and as I said, I've done for thirty years. I've never called him Steve. <laughs> okay, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, I want to talk about this sideways. Uh, issue that uh, Jerry mentioned a little while ago. What if things go sideways? Well, first of all, we've got to describe what sideways is or means uh, and then talk about uh, what impact that could have. But first of all, quick break. Welcome back. Uh, you are listening to The Bridge, the Monday episode. It's a more butts conversation. That means James Moore and Jerry Butts, uh, former Conservative Cabinet Minister James Moore, a former Principal Secretary to uh, Justin Trudeau, and Jerry Butts. Um, what we try to do here is get that kind of nonpartisan look at uh, the inside of the the political sausage, if you will, and how it all works. And today's conversation is all about the Canada-U.S. relationship. Jerry, you mentioned, I don't know, 15 minutes ago, you said this all works as long as things don't go sideways. What's sideways? Well, that's a good question, Peter. I think that um, people will have different views on what about what sideways looks like. In my view, it's a breakdown, a generally recognized breakdown in the rule of law in the United States where it becomes fundamentally ungovernable because half the country won't submit to the authority of the other half. And that could take its take its form in many things. I think we're seeing the precepts of it in the abortion issue, for instance. I think that there were a lot of people who thought, um, who, who, as to quote George W. Bush, misunderestimated how salient a political issue this would be, and it's become a a, a live wire in races as uh, far flung as the midterm midterms in general in the Wisconsin court uh, elections, right? So I, I think I'm worried that we end up with a situation where the United States is governed by uh, people who fundamentally don't share the values of your average Canadian. And that's, uh, that's going to be a difficult relationship to manage. It was very difficult in the run-up to Donald Trump's election. You'll all remember when the polls were neck and neck and people were constantly hectoring the government, the liberal government in Ottawa to take a strong position against something Donald Trump had said that morning, whether it was perceived to be or it was, in fact, misogynist or anti-immigrant or anti-trade or anti-anything, anti-climate change, etc. Uh, it's one thing when that's happening on the campaign trail. It's another thing when it's coming at you as actual policy from your most important and largest trading partner. And I think practically speaking, I, I seriously thought that we might face a migration problem from the United States after Donald Trump was elected. I didn't think it would be uh, manifest itself in one place in Quebec and it be basically a pass through from other countries. But 
that 9,000 kilometer border is uh, a real challenge if a lot of people want to leave either of the two countries for the other. Do you think a former, I mean, I have a few anxieties. A former public safety minister in our government, you know, he's, he, had, he had multiple portfolios. One of them was public safety minister for a while. And he said he hated the portfolio because 24 7, he said, you know, there could be an, an issue at a border that would be weaponized in American media in a way that would close the border and threaten, you know, one in four Canadian jobs that's dependent on trade with the United States. And he said, you know, the 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 issues that we deal with in terms of threats, asymmetric, you know, digital um, threats of terrorism, sleeper cells and all these things, they're real and they're they're not small. And and it doesn't take much for um, for things to get out of control rhetorically and for, and sort of an isolated America to push back and and build a wall against against its two neighbors. And and that's a real threat. And and, and that's kind of an ongoing dynamic, as Jerry described, you know, the nature of, uh, on that front. I, I mean, I worry as an observer of American politics, the things that Jerry described as, as well. And, and there was a recent example that sort of sort of to me drew a real clear distinction about the divisions in American politics that, that make me anxious, which was the um Kyle Rittenhouse case uh in his shooting, right? And I remember I remember actually having a project which was I saw on Twitter that Kyle Rittenhouse was found not guilty in the shootings. And then I and then I deliberately went to Fox News and watched how they covered it. Because there's video of what he did. We know what he did. The testimony was was broadcast in the courtroom and everybody saw it and all of its inflection points and all that. And here was what Fox News said about it. And here's what MSNBC said about it. And so with the exact same facts, the two sides around with it and had a completely different narrative of a freedom fighter was exonerated versus a murderer was let free uh, and and in all the associated conversations that was really sort of disturbing in, in, in how people could take the exact same facts and run with them uh, in, in different directions on, on a more tectonic level, though. Um, is is the I'm really worried about Mexico and what's happening south of the U.S. border because it's not just a Canada-U.S. relationship; it's the North American platform. Uh, when when Brian Mulroney uh, decided with with uh, President George H.W. Bush to create the free trade agreement Canada and the U.S., uh, it, Prime Minister Kretschmer saw virtue in extending that to NAFTA and bringing Mexico into the relationship, which at the time, of course, made a lot of sense. Mexico was. Uh, we want Mexico to become a middle-class country. We want it to not have a boom and bust cycles that create instability in Mexico, which create immigration problems with the United States, which result in a necessity of bailouts over years. So you want Mexico to be stabilized. So bring them as part of NAFTA. And for Canada, if you had a two-person relationship opposite the United States, that would maybe give us some leverage and a go-forward basis with regard to NAFTA. Good virtues, bring them into NAFTA, and so we have. But I think over time, if you look at Lopez Obrador, and uh, in, in Mexico and some of the anti-democratic things that are happening in Mexico, you look at um, some of the rhetoric in the United States about the need for a wall and, and the invasion and, you know, the, the jingoistic and, and xenophobic language that's associated with that and the racial tensions that and then in Mexico, you see China moving in and now the most the busiest border crossing between uh, the United States and China is through Laredo, Mexico and not through LA Long Beach port. And and the tensions between America and Mexico could threaten Canada's relationship with the United States. You could imagine 
a relationship with Canada and the United States, but it didn't include Mexico, where you could have more labor mobility. That's not possible with Mexico as part of the agreement. You could see a Canada-US relationship that could have a continental or near-continental price on carbon that you can't do with Mexico. And so I worry that Mexico threatens the NAFTA-USMCA relationship in a way that Canada could be forced to look at a bilateral relationship and not have the leverage to get something meaningful for our country. So as NAFTA, as the new NAFTA expires in 2026, which is to say very soon, after that, it goes to a year-by-year agreement. And if you have a year-by-year agreement and people are making investment decisions about where they want to park their capital in North America, after the investment, the, the Inflation Reduction Act in the United States with more competitive tax rates in the United States, Canada becomes a very unattractive relative place to invest compared to the United States. That's a, This is all a real threat. And so, so I, so I worry about the Canada-US relationship. Yes, on the social side, I mentioned Rittenhouse, the stuff that Jerry talks about, all that. But, but there's a, there's a, there's a, you know, a, a meteor that's heading towards the relationship in 2026 that I don't think is being talked about or taken seriously enough. Okay. Um, well, let, let me close on this question then, because you've both described, and as James just mentioned, uh, on different levels of different issues, but. You know, there are always threats to uh, relationships. Uh, that's, uh, you know, that, that's fairly common. But the, the, the words you're using, both of you, to describe what we may be going through right now or approaching is pretty scary stuff. You know, from the meteor on trade to the, uh, the, 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 the breakdown in the rule of law in the United States. I mean, are we at... Are we at a point we've never seen before in our lifetimes on this relationship? Absolutely. I, I think the United States is, and, and you have to start from the point that the United States, like all great powers, is fundamentally self-interested to the point of being narcissistic, right? They recognize that they have an important relationship with Canada, but make no mistake, they are the subject and we are the object, they see us as an asset first and foremost. And for all of the reasons that James described earlier, uh, uh, they recognize our system of government as one that resembles their own. They like having a stable, prosperous democracy on their uh, border. They like having an accepting market for uh, 40 million people for their goods and services. But they think of themselves as the policymaker and they think of us as the policy taker, right? As a uh, a quite famous American politico whose identity I will protect needled me many years ago when I asked him what do um, serious Americans really think about Canada. He said four words, energy now, water later. <laughs> that's that's what he said. And I think that that while I think that's a blunt statement of fact, it's it's something that Canadians should orient themselves around. And I it's not since the 1860s, Peter, uh, or 1850s, where we've seen the United States so divided against itself, as President Lincoln famously said, that certainly in my lifetime, there's never been a moment where most Americans would think of other Americans as greater enemies than anybody external to the United States of America itself. And we've got to reckon with that because it's been uh, it's a structural problem that's been weaponized and accelerated by modern communications technology that has helped political parties that spend billions of dollars hardening the carapace around their tribe uh, do that at a uh, an incredibly advanced rate and way. 
and there's no solution on the horizon for it. So I think you put that together with the proximate danger of the NAFTA renegotiation that, as James rightly points out, is coming at us a lot faster than people want to recognize. And we've got all the makings of a very unstable molecule, right? It could uh, it could blow up in a hundred different ways that I could think of. James, you get the last word. I um, I love the United States of America historically and what it's done. I mean, I'm a big fan of the United States, and so you know, we as Canadians, you know, I, I don't mean for anything that I've said to be preachy. I, I, I um, what America has done in the world, fighting world wars, uh, you know, a force for democracy, all these things. I mean, I, um, I, which is why the, the stresses that I see in the United States make me make me strategically anxious for Canada for the reasons we've talked about, but also in a lot of ways very sad. I think the three three big moments of American division. Civil War, Vietnam War, and then today, I think sort of are, are sort of the three that stick out. And what what's what's pr- problematic a- about today is that people just really seem to be breaking into um, sort of silos and echo chambers of media gerrymandering and redistricting of of, of congressional districts means that over 80, 90 percent of members of Congress aren't even challenged for their re-election. So, so you can't get the sort of expression of division through political processes, which is bad. And when it does happen and it doesn't go in your direction, can we have the peaceful trans- transition of power and have it be recognized? Uh, you know, campaign finance rules cause greater d- divisions of things, single issue primary voters that are that are that overweight things relative to what the general population wants. I mean, all these things cause, I think, real tensions in the United States that I, that I think is is really kind of scary. And while while the United States is is becoming insular and divided about Trump or and about, you know, single issues, whether it's abortion or guns or or, or, or other things, um, while they do that, the rest of the world isn't sleeping. China is moving. The one belt, one road moves forward. The um, the threats to Taiwan are real. The the collection of of rare and important minerals across Africa is happening. Vladimir Putin is becoming more dangerous and more belligerent. Bad actors around the world are becoming more dangerous and more threatening. So as America sort of gets sucked into this self, um, you know, self divisiveness around politics. Uh, it doesn't come at a consequence just to the United States, but also to the rest of the world. And in that, I think that is really, uh, you know, really tragic and really scary about what can happen when it, well, um, this um, America, the great superpower winner of the Cold War, war on terror, becomes completely isolated and sort of walls off from the rest of the world. The rest of the world doesn't just sit around and let that happen. Bad actors will rise and, and strength will 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 win and that's a very scary prospect about that realignment as well great conversation gentlemen uh really appreciate it from uh, from both of you giving us uh, lots to think about um as we uh, move forward we'll we'll get together again one more time before the summer break not sure what we'll talk about but uh i'm sure we'll find something uh so thank you james thank you jerry great to talk to you both always a pleasure peter thank you wow so there you go from it's a good relationship to it's a very unstable molecule. Quite the conversation over the last uh, 45 minutes or so. And uh, I'm glad we've had it. And as with all the Moore Butts conversations, they leave you, as I said, with lots to think about. Okay, well, we're going to keep thinking as the week goes on. Uh, tomorrow, it's um, Brian Stewart's by with more fallout still from those leaked Pentagon papers, um, and as a result, lots to talk about 
on it. You know, the impact uh, those leaks have had in terms of the world's situation as it relates to Ukraine and what it means on the ground in the Ukraine-Russia war. Uh, Wednesday, it's uh, Smoke, Mirrors, and the Truth. Bruce Anderson will be by. Thursday, your turn. More letters. <laughs> we'll try to read more than just where they're coming from. Um, and the Random Ranter is back again. Lots of nice comments about his uh, commentary last week. Friday, good talk. Chantelle Bear and Bruce Anderson. So that's your look ahead to the week ahead. I'm Peter Mansbridge. Thanks so much for listening today. We'll talk to you again in 24 hours. Thank you.